Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. The statistics are pretty consistent. Schizophrenia exists in about 1% of the population, and the most common age of onset is the late teens or early 20s. It's a chronic disorder. So those who suffer from it, as well as the families and friends of those with schizophrenia, face a lifetime of challenges. Richard Greer is a psychiatrist in Central Florida. Dr. Greer, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Let's begin with a basic concept. What would be a good working definition of schizophrenia? I would say two things. Number one, schizophrenia is a brain disease. It is a biological disease of the brain. Secondly, schizophrenia is a disorder of both perception and relationships. These are individuals who have difficulty sometimes perceiving reality. They are individuals who sometimes have hallucinations or have false beliefs known as delusions. And secondly, again, they don't relate necessarily as well to other people as the general population. Do we know what causes it? No, not precisely. We have some clues that there are some neurotransmitters in the brain and there are some receptors in the brain that maybe function a little differently than the general population, but we don't know precisely what causes it. It does have, however, a biological or a genetic basis, so it may, to some extent, run in families. We know it's a chronic disorder, but is there a general sense of the course of schizophrenia over time? Does it stabilize? Do people get better? Do they get worse? Do we have any sense of that? We do, and I think the biggest message I could give today regarding schizophrenia is if it is treated, consistently treated, and if relapses are prevented by staying on the medicines, then we really can most adequately or most impressively affect the course of the illness. It is like any other illness in that some people have a worse case scenario and some people have a better case scenario, but one of the truisms is that people who take care of their disorder or their disease over the long run do better than those who don't. We know that there are a lot of medications now on the market. Take us on a very brief tour because I know this is a very complex area. What do these medications do? The medications have certainly improved and I don't want people to think that we are still in the quote dark ages unquote when we use Thorazine exclusively and just made people into zombies. That was certainly in the movies years ago. And to some extent, yes, those medications were very sedating. The more modern medications, things like Latuda or Abilify or Seroquel or Zyprexa, tend to be more able to pinpoint the symptoms of the disease and have fewer side effects. So people are less likely to be sedated or zombie-like. But still, these medications are not perfect. They don't always work even when patients take them. And they do have side effects sometimes. It's interesting that you bring up the side effects because the literature is pretty consistent with the notion that the biggest reason for noncompliance with treatment is not the disease itself, but the side effects of the treatments. I have to agree with that. Certainly no one wants to think that they have a mental disease or a mental disorder, and that initially can pose a bit of a problem when dealing with a young schizophrenic person. But you're right. Individuals do sometimes experience side effects to the medicines, and that makes it more difficult to stay on the medicines long term. If there's weight gain, if there is sedation, if there are muscle cramps or some other kind of side effects, that can pose a difficulty. But if the doctor and the patient have a good relationship and they're working together, very often these side effects can be minimized, medicines can be changed in order to better suit the patient. 
is there a sense of how many people, once they're properly treated, get better enough so that they can be independent, that they can live outside of hospitals or even psychiatric long-term group homes, those sorts of things? Where are we in getting people to the job market? Well, it's a, it's a very good question, a bit of a complex question, but I would certainly have to say that the majority of people can live independently, meaning outside of hospitals, outside of institutions, whether it is in some kind of group home, at home with the family, or in some other residential setting. The vast majority of these people do not reside in a hospital or in some kind of locked institution. Some of them go back to work, yes. Do some of them not go back to work, yes. The course is rather different for every person. I've had people who are extremely bright who got schizophrenia. It does not seem to be a disease that picks people of one race or one type of IQ. It can hit or strike anybody. But some people have done remarkably well with it, and others, again, who have not necessarily taken care of themselves do tend to sometimes have significant falls, if you will, in their socioeconomic status. And then there are the few that repeatedly end up in hospitals and institutions. The course is different for everyone. We used to call that the downward spiral, and it used to be because we really had very poor control over any of the symptoms. It's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still there. Do we see other symptoms with schizophrenics? Do they also suffer from anxiety and depressions and phobias, the normal run of things? Yes, of course. And they are as susceptible, if not more susceptible, to whether it's other mental disorders or physical disorders than, again, say, the general population. You can imagine that if you had, from time to time, a feeling of paranoia or you were hearing voices, that over time that would indeed become anxiety-producing or depressing. And so, of course, the incidence of, say, suicide attempts or suicide completions is actually greater in schizophrenics than it is in the general population. Once again, I think the relationship of the patient to the doctor is of paramount importance to try to help the patient through those dark or difficult times. Can the schizophrenics marry? Can they have kids? Sure, of course. The incidence of a child being born to a schizophrenic parent that would also become schizophrenic as he or she grows older is about 5%. So it's certainly not automatic that just because a schizophrenic gets married or has a child that that child is doomed to have that same disease. There are a lot of misconceptions about people with schizophrenia. Sadly, a lot of that comes from the media. They see people as out of control, wildly hallucinating or violent. Are these people any more violent than anybody else? No. In fact, I would say they are the victims of violence more often than other people. I'm a forensic psychiatrist by training and board certification, and it is extremely rare to see a schizophrenic who has committed a violent crime. They are usually, again, the victims of violent crime because they have difficulty defending themselves. And if they are homeless or if they have inadequate ability to defend themselves, they may be robbed, raped, beaten, or in fact, killed. So, no, I think the, the great majority of these folks we should have sympathy for, and we should certainly, as a civilized society, try to look out for them. Let's talk for a moment about something that confuses a lot of people, and that's the difference between a hallucination and a delusion. People tend to use those terms interchangeably, but they're not exactly the same. What are the differences? Well, again, I think a good question. Hallucinations are a problem, again, perceiving either voices or sounds that are not based in reality. It may be a gustatory hallucination, a sense of taste. 
that is not based in reality. It may be an olfactory hallucination, one where you're experiencing smells that are not part of reality, or visual hallucinations in which you are seeing things that are not truly there. So that would be the definition of hallucinations, and it could be through any of our five senses. If I left out touch, I apologize, because of course certainly one could have the hallucination that one was being touched when in fact that wasn't occurring. I mentioned earlier that a delusion is a fixed false belief, and emphasis on the word belief. When we talk about paranoid schizophrenia, paranoia can very often be a delusion, a fixed false belief that one is being persecuted, say, by a government agency like the CIA, or even that one's friends or family is in some way listening in on their conversations. Some of these delusions can be very intricate, very complex, very well, interesting to see would be a, a way to describe it. One of the standard theories, which has existed for a very long time, is that people who suffer from schizophrenia actually have an abnormality in the neurohormone system called dopamine. But now the serotonin system, and it gets a little bit confusing. So this is a very complex question, and I apologize. But we're talked about what are known as first-generation antipsychotics and now second-generation antipsychotics. They're similar and they're different. Can you give us a little tour of those? Sure. The first generation, otherwise known as conventional antipsychotics, would indeed include names like Thorazine or Melaril, Haldol, Prolixin, medicines that really concentrated on the dopamine system and in fact did not differentiate very well between dopamine receptors. So all of the dopamine receptors would be targeted by these more first generation or conventional antipsychotics. Unfortunately, when you target dopamine receptors, not only can you affect hallucinations and delusions, but you can affect movement. Parkinson's disease, for example, of course, is a disorder of the dopamine system. So if you're blocking dopamine that is needed for movement by using one of these conventional medicines, you can make a patient appear to have Parkinson's disorder. The newer generation or the second generation, the atypical antipsychotics, as they're commonly known, do a better job targeting the more appropriate D2 or dopamine 2 receptors, and as you mentioned, target also some of the serotonin receptors. It appears to be a balance of addressing, if you will, the D2 receptor and the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor, and I'm not trying to be too technical here, but if there is a good balance in that regard, then it seems that not only do patients get better, but the side effects are less, and over the long haul, that makes a big difference when you're treating a chronic disease. And one of the major side effects that frightened us, and rightly so for a long time, something known as tardive dyskinesia. Are we getting a better control, better handle on that? It appears so. These new generation or second generation atypical antipsychotic medicines have only been out for approximately 10, 15 years. And tardive dyskinesia is indeed a problem that occurs over the long term, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. With the conventional antipsychotics or the older generation antipsychotics, there was probably a, at least a 50-50 chance that eventually a patient would develop tardive dyskinesia or that kind of spastic movement disorder anywhere in their body. With the newer generation or the atypical antipsychotics, that incident appears to be far less, but still we're not out 30 or 40 years yet. But I can tell you that the research and the clinical experience that these newer medicines work better and don't have the high incidence of tardive dyskinesia. Sometimes people hear that drug abuse, in particular one of the hot topics right now is marijuana, that it causes schizophrenia. My belief is that while certainly marijuana does not cause schizophrenia, 
schizophrenia. If one is genetically susceptible, if one has the predisposition to develop psychotic symptoms like a schizophrenic, then using medications or using substances, I should say, that alter reality, whether it's marijuana, other drugs, or even possibly alcohol, one is taking a, a larger chance, a bigger risk than somebody who does not have that propensity or that genetic predisposition to kind of get tipped over into the world of being psychotic. And so if they do use marijuana and they're arrested for it, then it looks as if there's an association between marijuana and schizophrenia. But I know that one of the interesting statistics, and it goes back to what you said a few minutes ago, is that the vast majority of people who are in jail and who are schizophrenic are there with charges such as trespassing. They're not there with violent crimes. Such a difference, such a different perception. Again, you're exactly right. I get disturbed when I'm called in to see somebody in the jail or the prison system that appears to have been inadequately cared for, inadequately treated, and did something foolish, such as repeated trespassing or broke into a house because they have no place else to live, and therefore we incarcerate them for an extended period of time. It seems to me, at least, that we sometimes would rather treat these people in jails rather than in long-term residential institutions. And again, that's not my goal for some of these people, but invariably there are a few schizophrenics that need long-term care, and it's unfortunate that we sometimes incarcerate them and punish them. And part of the problem is that for insurance reasons and other social policy reasons, maintaining the cost of treating these folks, and they need it forever, is very high, and so a lot of that is absorbed by the family, and if the family doesn't have the money or if they don't have a family, they fall through the system. Again, I, I must agree with you. It, it, this is a complex problem in our society, and there are certainly many, oh, areas where we could improve, uh, and certainly there are a lot of resources out there that can be brought to bear to help this population. One percent of the population is not small. I mean, if you think about 1% of the population being, or 1 out of 100 people being schizophrenic, and that's just schizophrenia, we're not even talking about other mental disorders, I believe that more resources should be brought to bear to try to help these people. But these people cannot advocate for themselves. They are not going to be a political lobby organization. It's a tough, a tough road for them. The follow-up is that their family has to advocate for them. Let's look into the family for a moment here. A very interesting problem that is often presented to me, and I'm sure you as well. Parents say, how do I know when I should be worried? Do we see signs of it when they're 13 years old, when they're 18 years old? When do we start intervening? What are the clues that we need to look for? That's a most difficult question, and one that I find, oh, it's, it's very emotional when you have to tell a family that, as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, we believe that their child is turning or has had a first psychotic episode and is possibly going to become schizophrenic. You were mentioning that at 13, 14, 15, indeed, there are signs of schizophrenia. I treat children and adolescents as well as adults in geriatrics, and so I see those, those signs when a child has some strange or bizarre beliefs or behaviors described as, as rather bizarre, maybe some bizarre religious beliefs that really don't fit with the family's religious practices, or the child or adolescent becomes less social, more withdrawn, their grades start to slip. They develop a flat affect or a flat emotional appearance and are withdrawn. And, and the behavior not only continues, but it seems to get worse until there's finally an outright, if you will, or identifiable 
psychotic break where they are again either hallucinating or delusional or both and that's when they come to our attention and hopefully it's not in some kind of crisis or disaster mode but then the conversation obviously needs to take place with the family that this is a chronic and very serious illness and again I believe that probably the best thing that families can do is to have a relationship with a physician who is a psychiatrist that can be there to answer questions, to develop a relationship with not just the patient, but the family, so that when it appears that somebody is decompensating or beginning to have greater difficulty functioning or with misperceptions, that there's a doctor to call, that there's a place to bring that patient for evaluation and stabilization as needed. You said that you also work with geriatric folks. By the same extension, how common is this in the older folks? No one thinks of them being 80 and 90 years of age. Yes, I, I agree, but uh, unfortunately, the life expectancy of schizophrenics is not very good. So where your or my life expectancy might be in the late 70s, these folks unfortunately have a life expectancy into the late 50s. They do not simply live as long as the rest of us. That's probably due to a lack of exercise, a lack of diet, and they do tend to smoke. Nicotine is very interesting in schizophrenic patients, and if you wish to discuss it, I'll go there with sure, you. Sure, I'd be fascinated to hear it. I'm one that actually defends the schizophrenic patient's right to smoke. And, and I know that from a doctor that might sound like heresy uh, because certainly they're ruining their health with smoking. But on the other hand, nicotine is the only drug that seems to calm down a person and make them more alert at the same time. So you can imagine if you're having difficulty with voices or the anxiety associated with paranoia, that nicotine is possibly one of the things that you turn to to try to both relax and to be able to concentrate and get through your day. Now, obviously, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination that smoking is good, but I do understand their, their quality of life is compromised, and they are trying to get through as best as they can. So it's an ongoing issue and an ongoing dilemma. I do want them to have some quality of life, but certainly I know that it's not good for them. So I, I don't have an ultimate answer, but I do find it an interesting phenomenon with a higher incidence of smoking among schizophrenics than in the general population by far. Dr. Richard Greer is a psychiatrist in Central Florida, and he's been kind enough to sit and talk to us a little bit about many of the realities of what it's like for a person who has to live a life with schizophrenia. Dr. Greer, thank you so much. Dr. Strauss, it's been my pleasure.